This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, the Rob Ford crack uh, video that everybody was talking about for so long uh, has finally surfaced. We'll talk. We'll uh, uh, we're going to play you a portion of it actually, and um, and, and it, you know I, I I thought about doing this and not doing this coming in, and initially my reaction was not to do this story, and certainly not pay the attention to it uh, right off the top. But when you see the video, I think it's re really important, and we will have the video up momentarily. Uh, I just think it's important for people to, t to see this video. And it's, uh, it's not what you think it is. And uh, it, it, I think, would have changed things drastically as far as public's perception of this man because what we have is a man who is uh, who is suffering from a, a severe illness and an addiction and uh, it is not pleasant uh, we're going to play a portion of this for you um, and we'll let you decide what you think about it that's why he wants to be involved in everything he wants to fight everybody's battles and it's, it's going to kill you excuse me kill you don't do it the kids are important to you that's 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 what drives you baby that's what i love that's why we love you okay i don't know your children your family your kids footballers your, your kids who play football that's what drives you family i drive with a minority i'm I take these kids on my You're right head. wing? No, they say I'm just right wing. Oh, yeah. Radical oh, yeah, fucking yeah, guy. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah what does right, the liberals say? I'm right going to leave that. I like the Trudeau and shove my foot as far up his because I'm sure it goes real far. Yeah, I'm shucking out nose hairs with my foot. Right. I hate Trudeau, man. She's just saying. It's like All right, so as you can tell, pretty much of what the former mayor is saying is inaudible. We, of course, edited the F-bombs out of it, which makes it sound odd. Um, but he, he, he's, you know, he's inaudible. You, you can barely hear what he's saying. And it is clear that this person is trying to, of course trap the mayor into some sort of extortion thing this is a part of the video this is after the video and the person who took it talking into the camera god damn that's some crazy she's gotta aim the camera towards a person and they don't never ever know when as long as you're just playing with your phone and just doing something yeah that's how you catch a person slipping catch a predator or even crack ha ha so, uh, and again, we've edited a great deal of that out uh, just simply because of the language involved. And, of course, you can see it. But uh, I, think, I think this is going to make people think a lot differently of what this story uh, transpired and how it all ended and, and came to fruition. Joining us now is Joe Warmington, columnist for the Toronto Sun, of course, uh, followed this story at great length when it was all coming down. Joe is with us now. Hello, Joe. What are your thoughts today? Well, I think the... And obviously, my first thoughts are with uh, Rob Ford and his family and his kids and all of that, because, you know, obviously he's gone and it's painful enough, and, uh, you know, this is a tough day for them. Should this have been released? Um, I didn't hear that, sorry. Should this video have been released? Did it need to be oh, released? Oh, 
sure it should have been released, yeah. and it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, the story is, the video will soak up the day as the story, but it really isn't the story. The story is, and you sort of alluded to it there, I think, <clears throat> that Rob Ford was a victim of an extortion, and Sandra Lisi was trying to help him get back that video so he wouldn't be a victim, that the Toronto police abused his power and authority and used taxpayers' money to, you know, chase these guys down particularly and then charge Sandra Lisi, who's basically collateral damage in the whole thing. And then, of course, then there's the media component, too, that reported on this, uh, you know, in one way, and a lot of things are wrong in how that was reported. So there's a lot of things at play here. Do you think the public will view Rob Ford differently now? I don't think so. I think that the the book has been written and on how people are going to feel about him, but it doesn't matter anyway. Um, you know, he had his demons, he made his mistakes, there was still, you know, whatever, tens of thousands of people at his funeral. And and so I said, you know, he obviously spent the last two years uh, clean and sober, if you will. So I don't think it does, but the people that hate Rob Ford and they were using the police and, the, you know, the Toronto Star particularly going after him in such a, you know, vicious way. Um, you're not going to change the mind of those people, but this is a bad day for them. Uh, this is a, a day where the light has shined on them and what they did as much as it is on what Rob Ford smoked in, in some uh, house on uh, Windsor Drive. What do you think this video tells us? What does it reveal? What do we get out of this? Well, again... The, the audio that you played is the best I've heard it because I've, I've only watched it on my phone in the Tim Hortons uh, near the court. So yeah, I'm not an expert on what it, what it, is, what it says. So, but I think what it reveals is that, you know, it shows the, the, the depths of despair that the, the mayor, the former mayor, was in with his uh, problems, addictions, etc., and how easily he could be manipulated. And of course, that's all on him. I mean, you're supposed to act in a professional way, although he was in his private time, um, things like that. It, it's not, not good. But it also reflects on other people, too, that would take advantage of people like that. And, you know, instead of the city rallying behind the mayor and getting them the help and focusing on that, what they did instead was they used it as a political opportunity to go after him and to take his job away and give it to the people that they wanted to have it. Yeah. And that, to me, is reprehensible. It's not democracy. And, uh, you know, that's how I feel about it. And you know what? I'm not new to that, as you know. I mm. mean, I've written that right from the very beginning. I feel today is a vindication of everything that I wrote uh, along the way. And, and that's not to say that, that, you know, Rob Ford's behavior wasn't uh, you know, wasn't good because it wasn't, but uh, it's a smaller part of the story compared to the bigger picture. Do you think, uh, Joe, if this video was released earlier, it would have changed public opinion? He, Rob Ford wanted it released. I wrote that just not yeah. too long before he died. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, checkbook journalism had never really existed in Canada until the Toronto Star and other people were meeting with the people who are trying to extort it and get it out there. And then we got checkbook journalism. And so, you know, there was a bounty on things like this. So the further videos that happened, which, uh, you know, I was, I brought one out, uh, the one of the Sully Gormans that ended up landing him into rehab. We didn't pay for that video. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we got the video the old fashioned way didn't cost any money. We weren't, there was no bounty on it. Just, just to present the facts. So 
I think that that affected him greatly. That was the one where he was talking about his wife and about Counselor Karen Stint. Yeah. And it, it affected him. So, yeah, I think to your point, Scott, I think that this video would have hurt him, um, you know, pretty badly uh, at the time. Do you think, though, Joe, that people may have had sympathy for him, realized how sick he was? I mean, you know, he, no as you mentioned, I mean, he got himself in predicaments he shouldn't have got himself in. No two ways about that. He made, uh, you know, some bad calls. On the other hand, you know, you watch this video and you see a man that needs severe help. That's what I always felt. And, I, and that was always in the back of my mind is how to help this guy. Let's not try to kill him. I got to tell you, you can see I'm trying to hold back, but I'm, I'm just disgusted with what the Toronto police did here and spending millions and millions of dollars to get this guy and his friends over nothing. It was all thrown out of court today. And with media people that were trying to, you know, use the, the political agenda that they are driven by in a way to destroy a man and his family and all this stuff for what they purport to, to be, you know, human mental health uh, addiction kinds of issues. So that on one hand, they're promoting all that wonderful and on the other hand, they're going after the guy. Now, you know, we're critics, you and I, and we'll criticize a Premier Wynn or, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau or Harper or whoever. But we'll never, ever do that. Never stoop to that level. And that's what happened here. This is a dark day for journalism and a dark day for policing. I don't blame the Toronto Police proper. I blame Chief Blair uh, for allowing this to happen on his watch. What do we learn from this? Uh, you know, uh, what, what do you take away from this? Well, boy, I mean, the reality is that, you know, there's so many things, I mean, on both sides. When you're scrutinizing a politician, this is an example of why you do it, because you don't want to have somebody put in a position where they can be extorted and it costs the taxpayers money. But you certainly don't want to see the opponents using the taxpayers' money to employ, uh, you know, an overall basically battle cry after somebody gets their position. And so, you know, I think that I think we learned a little bit with the Bill Clinton and Monica situation, which try to sort it out quicker. And that includes the people in the middle of it coming out quicker and admitting they have a problem in the case of Bill Clinton or in the case of Mayor Ford, rather than sort of carry it on for years. Look in the mirror and say, this is my fault and go and deal with it. Let the chips fall over they may. Now, that's easy to say all that, but that's what I think we learned. What do you think, you know, during the height of all of this, and he was on Jimmy Kimmel and, and, and all of that sort of stuff, how do you think all that plays into this now that we've seen the video? I think his legacy is, you know, bigger than ever. I don't think he's a political icon. He's a cultural icon. I think that Rob Ford will go down in history as a good mayor as the first couple of years. I think he did a lot. He's a good conservative-style mayor. Um, and then, obviously, it's another lesson for, you know, why you don't get into drugs and alcohol. But um, most people I talk to, you're going to have your haters and people that hate them. They're awfully, awfully quiet today so far. But I think most people realize that, you know, this guy tried his best. And, you know, he, he bucked the system and he had issues. And uh, But, you know, I think that the, he, in a way, is you know, one of Toronto's favorite sons, even with those warts and demons and all of that. Hmm. That's how I see it. From, an, from a, a journalistic perspective, uh, and, and you knew him personally, what are you going to, and I'm not asking you to, to reveal what you're going to do, but 
where's your head on this? What's your next column going to be like? I how do you know. how do you how do you finish this off? Might might, might take more than one. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm focused right now on the fact that the police and the media were kind of used and used uh, taxpayers' money. You know, in terms of the police, anyway, to, to go after somebody that shouldn't have happened. I think that's a big part of the story. <laughs> I don't know. If I, you know, I don't think Rob Ford wanted any defending. He was embarrassed himself with how his behavior was. So, yeah. you know, he was a drug addict. I mean, he's more of an alcoholic. With, you know, when once he blacked out, any anything was on. Yeah, and you know, that's well established. I mean, he's admitted to that. Um, and I guess journalistically, I mean, there's a responsibility to bring some of that out. And of course, we did that. I did that as well. And you know, sometimes he was not happy with me <laughs> for things that I brought out. How do you I think? I always give him a hearing, you know. Yeah. I always give him a fair hearing. How do you think everyone at City Hall is feeling today in Toronto? That's a tough one because you know they've kind of washed their hands of it, and they're happy that he's gone because what he did was kept everybody accountable themselves. And, you know, obviously he had his own sort of ghosts and skeletons that were easily to tap into, and it doesn't take much to peel that back on anybody, really. Uh, lots of people have things like this, maybe not to this extreme, but they're happy because there's no one talking about you know them uh, wasting away taxpayers' money like they once did. Does the release of this video change anything, or as you mentioned earlier, the people who didn't like them will still feel the same way, the people who did will still feel the same way as well? You know, again, I'm not really in a position to predict what's going to happen or what the reaction is going to be. I guess that's kind of in play right now, but... I think that because it's not really a relevant story, it's kind of like this lost hit song that yeah. no one knew was out there, but here it is, you know? So I think it's a one-day wonder, but we'll see. Do you, do you think by the time 24 hours is over, it's this, this is done, this is it, people will let this finally rest? I do. Joe Warmington has been with us, columnist with your Toronto Sun, and of course, uh, keep your eyes on that for uh, future, uh, future thoughts from Joe Warmington as uh, he processes what has happened over the last 24 hours. Joe, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Really do. Hey, uh, as a father, too, my heart goes out to that family of that tragedy there. I just wanted to you know, pass along. I know people are very sad. So, All right. Thank you, Joe. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Surprised yesterday to uh, find out a terrorist plot was thwarted, uh, thwarted and the suspect uh, killed. This all went down yesterday in Strathroy, Ontario. Aaron Driver was killed in the confrontation when police, uh, with he and police, uh, uh, he was issued, rather, a uh, court order not to associate with any terrorist organizations, including ISIS, and from what we understand was planning an attack. Uh, he was a person who was, of course, raised here and as a result has become radicalized uh, through the Internet and, and uh, in various other, uh, I guess, uh, posts and, and things that he was involved with on social media. Joining us now is Alex Wilner, Associate Professor of International Relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. How does one become radicalized? And Alex is with us now. Hello, Alex. How are you today? Thanks, Scott. I'm very well, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. What are your thoughts when you saw this case, uh, before we get into how this happens? Are you surprised? Uh, I'm not, not surprised. I mean, um, Aaron Driver had been in the news previously, of course. Uh, he was handed a peace 
uh, Bond um, last year, right? And uh, he mm-hmm. did some lengthy interviews with the CBC and other media sources. Um, and he had expressed certain sentiments that were uh, deemed violent, of course. Uh, so he, his name appeared, of course, in this in this in this world of homegrown terrorism. But of course, it is surprising that uh, he was ultimately killed by police in a in a tactical raid. It appears um, on his way to potentially conducting uh, an attack on Canadians in London or around London, Ontario. So yeah, there's some surprising elements, but again, the general trends in Canada and abroad suggest that this is occurring more uh, often. How do we explain that? Well, so I mean, part of this is simply uh, about radicalization, and I think for your listeners, what's important is to understand that radicalization is a process of change, and it's a process of uh, cognitive, right? So there's a mental aspect of change, there's a personality aspect of change, there's a belief system of change. And so a person like Aaron Driver would have gone through this process of radicalization, of personal change, slowly but surely. He would have acquired new information um, that he would have internalized, a new set of belief structures or worldviews that he would have internalized. And then in his particular case, he would then have become a violent extremist in which his new belief system legitimized and justified the use of violence, uh, terrorist violence against Canadians. Um, and so the process itself is understood. The triggers are less understood, and there's not really one uh, process that fits all radicalization. Plus, there's uh, plus there's a you know quite a line between those who are disenfranchised and disgruntled and those who decide to do things like this. Right. So, it, it not so the, 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 what terrorism experts or academics would say is that you know n- not all processes of radicalization lead to. Uh, terrorism. Some people change their worldviews and they become radicalized in the sense that they believe things that we disagree with, right? Uh, but they don't then agree that violence is the best, uh, that violence is legitimized mm-hmm. uh, by their worldviews. And a-, a person like Aaron, um, Aaron Driver, passed that phase. So he went into this small apex of the pyramid in which radicalized individuals become violent individuals, and that trigger process. Could you know? In his case, it appears that he was digesting, um, you know, violent videos, right? So you mentioned the internet content, um, and was socializing both personally and online with other radical, other known radical uh, elements in Canada and abroad. So he was internalizing these belief structures to the point where he sought out to conduct violence in the name of this new world uh, worldview. So is this, uh, by stopping, you know, everybody's t- you know, thinking about how do we stop radicalization, is it about that, or is it one step uh, earlier, and that being, you know, finding and helping the disenfranchised? Well, so it might be a surprise to some of your listeners, but it's not illegal to be a radical in yeah. this country. Mm. It's illegal to be a violent radical. Mm. So you, can, you and I can, you know, we can believe in far different uh, aspects of, of human life, of sexuality, of religiosity, and disagree, and still not break the law. Right. And Aaron Driver broke the law because it was the de- thesis and, and, the, and the judicial process deemed it likely that he would conduct violence. But if you believe in such a movement that is so violent, is it naive to think that this person will not become violent? It's a tough question, Scott. I mean... I think you can ask at a variety of experts and you'll get different answers. Yeah. And I don't have a ready answer for you, in fact. I mean, we, know we live in a country where you are, by law, protected to believe in many different things, yeah. however uh, grotesque they might be. 
And some of that might, in fact, be in support of a group like ISIS, uh, which is you know, a barbaric, uh, brutal organization that believes in slavery and torture and beheadings and the rest. Um, it is illegal to take a step further to then support them actively uh, with finances or, or, or to accept their call to conduct acts of violence, which is what's happened in this case and in other cases like Aaron Driver. Which it also explains why this is so difficult to investigate and, and even harder to prosecute. It is absolutely difficult. I mean, in, in this case, there, was, there were steps uh, because he was issued with a peace bond, which is not usually, it's, not, not a, it's become more typical, but it's not a very common practice. So he had restrictions on his uh, daily routine, right, yeah. in terms of who he could communicate with and where he could travel and what, what he could read. Um, and so there were steps to, um, to charge him with certain offenses. Um, and who knows where that would have gone. I mean, obviously, in this, in this case, there's, you know, Aaron managed to, it appears that he managed to build a certain number of explosives uh, and was intent on carrying out an act of violence. And so... You know, it adds proof to the fact that actually CSIS and others were right to consider him uh, a violent threat to Canadian safety. How do we balance this? How do we recognize those uh, that that have these thoughts and then those that are willing to take them one step farther? That is a million-dollar question, Scott. I think it's uh, very, very difficult. They're, um, so but legally defined, there are parameters in which that line is crossed, and that is clear. If you send a wire transfer to ISIL supporters, you've crossed the line into supporting of terrorism. If you are acquiring the precursor chemicals for explosives, right, with the intent of using them, it's clear that you've crossed that line. What's less clear is in reposting videos and verbally supporting uh, grotesque images and, and grotesque calls for violence. And so this is where democracies like Canada struggle in, in finding that proper balance between, um, you know, appearing to outwardly support an organization uh, that, that may lead to violence um, and simply, you know, retweeting something. And I think Aaron originally was caught up in this, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he has a long list of, of uh, social uh, media uh, explorations in this and, re- and um, you know, Facebook and, and, and tweets and, and whatnot. Um, and in his case, again, he crossed the line, and, and he, was, he was captured in that sense, right? Like, yeah. the system worked. I mean, he was identified. Mm. Uh, he was brought before the various uh, criminal charges, and, and then, of course, you know, police intercepted him. They knew where he lived and so on. Um, so okay. it's, it's, it's in cases where there are people like Aaron Driver who don't use social media, who, who don't tip off intelligence officers and others, uh, uh, as to their beliefs that we have to really be more worried about. Was this person perhaps looking for more attention than he was on changing the world, do you think? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, disgruntled, uh, you know, not a very good childhood. I mean, all the yeah. typical signs are there. Is he looking for attention? Is he trying to be noticed? Or is he actually believing in in, in all of this? Yeah. It's, a, it's another good question. I, I mean, some of the, so some of the, you know, the precursors are there, right? The, there was a, a, a death of his mother at yeah. a young age. You know, there are sp- specific elements within his life at which we might be able to point and say, you know, that, you know, th- these are tragic events that might have changed, you know, his mental state, uh, made him susceptible to different belief systems, and, you know, of course, many millions, many thousands of Canadians who have similar life tragedies like him don't go on, of yeah. course, to become violent. So that's not an easy explanation either. But I, I think what ISIS has done. 
successfully and in step, I think, with Al-Qaeda and other uh, Sunni fundamentalist groups is that they've, they've basically sold their vision for statehood and for global uh, domination as a way out of things like poverty, yeah. alcoholism, hmm. and, and so on. Are you concerned there are more errand drivers out there? There are. We, I mean, we, we, know, we know of them. In some cases, their names are known, uh, you know, list of 70 or 80 names. And in fact, with McDonald Laurier Institute, the think tank in Ottawa, we're, we're compiling a data set of homegrown terrorists and radicals in Canada to kind of tease out some of the uh, comparisons that we might be able to. Um, but it's the ones that are unknown to intelligence uh, services and police services that, that are most worrisome. I think in Canada we're in a good position. I think we, we generally have a, a good sense of, of who's doing what. But in places like France, uh, Spain, uh, UK, Germany, there are potentially hundreds or maybe thousands of individuals like Aaron Driver who are unknown to security services. Uh, and that, you know, we see the, the level of violence in the streets of Europe uh, over the last two years. I don't think we're in that same boat, but uh, I think Canadians are are aware and should become even more aware of the potential for for these kinds of threats here in Canada. Alex Wilner has been with us, Associate Professor of International Relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Alex, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Terrorist plot that was thwarted and a suspect killed yesterday in Strathroy, Ontario. Aaron Driver, well known to uh, police and intelligence officials, killed in confrontation with police. David Harris is with us in Cygnus Strategic Group. He is a terrorism expert and with us now. Hello, David. Your thoughts on what has transpired out of Strathroy? Well, of course, it's uh, an invitation to a great deal of speculation, more or less informed. Uh, One of the interesting issues will, of course, be how it may have come about, if accurately reported, that uh, Mr. Driver uh, may have come into the possession, custody, and control of hazardous substances of the kind that you might use for explosives, IEDs, the very sort of thing that he may allegedly have detonated and may allegedly have intended to have detonated further. There were stories, of course, about there having possibly been two explosives under his control. So when you take into account the fact that Mr. Driver had been subject to a rather imposing terrorism peace bond imposed by Mm -hmm. a court, Uh, with various sorts of limitations on his ability to uh, move around and uh, undertake certain activity, Uh, you wonder what kind of monitoring was taking place of this gentleman that, notwithstanding the best efforts of authorities, uh, allowed him to proceed to the advanced kind of stage in preparing a possible terrorist attack that he had allegedly reached. Would they have let, would investigators have let him go that far in order to get to where they are in this case? Uh, Or would they have reacted long before this had they known that information? Very difficult to know. And my thinking, I suppose, is colored somewhat by the nature of the internal government memorandum that seems to have been distributed yesterday that uh, saw some in the government on the security side warning government at large and of course other um, undertakings and organizations including the uh, TTC in Toronto that there could be a terrorism threat that it could be more or less imminent I think today was the posited uh, D-Day for the activity Uh, and 
And so it carried the implication that something rather suddenly had shifted so that there was now something in the nature of an emergency, certainly Mm. a very urgent situation, which then implies, again, rightly or wrongly, that authorities may have felt that if they hadn't lost control of the situation, that at least the uh, choice of timing was not entirely their own when it came to uh, coming to grips with, uh, with Driver himself. In other words, they had to react. That's it. Now, you know, had, they, had the authorities been aware of the possible developing threats associated with Driver in this latest round? Or uh, was it that their information was incomplete? Uh, was the peace bond itself sufficient in its terms to enable authorities to monitor the individual with the intensity that, at least in retrospect, would have seemed to have been appropriate? But again, the magic word is always in retrospect, and uh, it's easy to be wise after the event. We have uh, various constraints, uh, constitutional and others, on the capacity of our law enforcement officials. And uh, as we saw, when the terms of the peace bond were being more or less negotiated, at least in part, between the Crown, the government side, uh, and uh, Mr. Driver's uh, lawyer on the other side uh, any number of months ago, uh, there were understandable cries from many who considered themselves uh, human rights advocates pointing out that uh, in some ways these were Uh, constraints imposed on a citizen of Canada uh, in the absence of the kind of evidence that would have enabled the Crown to have come out with a full-fledged criminal charge. Where do you think this leaves those people speaking now? Do you think it makes us more cautious of all this and more open to investigation? It's uh, very intriguing, isn't it? I mean, some of the uh, words uttered in absolute uh, good faith, I have no doubt, by some of these uh, human rights groups and individuals uh, assume a kind of deathlessness as they sit on the page now, Um, you know, talking about how uh, this might be unfair, others saying that there's no justification for this kind of imposition, and so on. Uh, their fundamental view is reasonable enough that we're concerned about constitutional rights. And in the case of uh, this individual, early on, uh, the Charter Section 2 right of free expression, because we have to remember, looking back a year or more, that it was thanks to some of the social media communications of Mr. Driver that he appears to have come decisively to the attention of the authorities, and they ultimately felt they had to move on him. Um, Of course, now we see that there was a good deal more than free expression that seemed to ultimately have been involved in the picture. So it's a difficult situation with which we all have to now conjure the tensions built into our various uh, constitutional rights on the one hand and uh, the fundamental public safety interest we all have on the other. Uh, Do you think Aaron Driver uh, had any sort of affiliation or was just a sympathizer? And if just a sympathizer, what does this say about this movement if these are, it it takes this little to inspire people to do this? Well, in many ways, I suppose we have to reframe some of these kinds of questions because we've seen that uh, one can become a material, uh, how would I put this, a material affiliate 
by being an aggressive enough sympathizer. One doesn't need the kind yeah. of membership card that we hmm. might have associated with the former radical extremist or terrorist groups. In, order in to other words, domestic terrorism is no different than international terrorism. Uh, well, I think you're generally able to be killed just about as dead in either case. Right. Yeah. Um, what, what do we learn from this? What does this say about our situation here in Canada? Well, I suppose we may want to reflect, first of all, on the possibilities that uh, terrorism peace bonds avail us. In other words, what can they achieve? Uh, are we being unduly hopeful when we talk about using peace bonds? But to a certain extent, the answer to that will depend on the specific content of a given peace bond. Will a judge buy some of the kinds of restraints and constraints that the Crown might want. Um, I you know, can't be sure about, of course, all of the details of the peace bond that was relevant to uh, Mr. Driver, but uh, we know that in phases when certain of the uh, conditions applied, and some conditions had applied, I think, and then been removed, uh, you may have had more or less coverage of this gentleman. Um, was it sufficient? Would uh, a judge have gone for uh, more comprehensive coverage? Right. Uh, should we be looking at things like, uh, you know, heaven knows, uh, cameras inside somebody's home? We've seen situations like that before in relation to other terror or security-related issues. Are you concerned about copycats or others motivated by this action? Well, I think it's been uh, fairly well recognized that we have an enemy presence in our country relating to Islamist terrorism. And so that's a, a real and ongoing issue. Uh, with or without copycats, as traditionally understood, we've got a problem. Mm. Um, so we have to be on our guard and be responsibly attentive to the legal and security aspects of this. David Harris has been with us in Cigna Strategic Group, a terrorism expert. David, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This came across uh, our desk uh, yesterday, and uh, boy, you know, as, as I said in my blog and commentary, if this doesn't resonate with people and their electricity rates, I'm not sure what will. And the statement is from Ontario PC Energy critic John Yakubuski, and it's on Ontario's electricity rates, and it says, quote, Today we learned that Ontario Hydro One customers officially pay the highest residential electricity rates in North America after our province's fast-increasing rates surpassed Hawaii's. Think about that. Yesterday we learned that Ontario Hydro One customers officially pay the highest residential electricity rates in North America. Is this the straw that will break the camel's back? Is this the statistic that will finally make people realize, although, you know, the, the, the uh, thoughts and ambition and the vision might be there, there certainly isn't due diligence. There certainly isn't a business case for this. And obviously, to talk more about this, uh, PC Energy critic in Ontario, John Yakubuski, is with us now. Good afternoon, John. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How about you? I'm doing very well. Uh, what has been the reaction to this statement and this press release? Well, unfortunately, it's not one of shock. Uh, I think it's what we've been saying for months and perhaps years, uh, that our electricity rates had now become the highest in North America. 
this just makes it official. But the sad fact of it is that this government also knows, has known for months and years, uh, where we were going. Uh, you know, years ago, you never ever heard the phrase energy poverty. It's one of the things you hear every day today, uh, where people are uh, faced with the decision as whether they're going to buy food or pay their electricity bill here in the province of Ontario. And that really is a sad commentary on a province that had it all uh, in the past when it came to cheap, reliable, abundant electricity, which made us a manufacturing powerhouse. And now we've been relegated to the, uh, to the back benches in that regard. What makes this official? What changed yesterday or the day before? Well, it's the, uh, it's the, uh, the hydro rates in Hawaii uh, basically have been coming down, and ours are now, even though there was no recent increase, ours are now the highest uh, based on the increases that took place uh, in the spring. Do you think and, this and is... The, the, the all-in price now for a low-density residential customer is now at about 27 cents a kilowatt hour. 27 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, do you think this is resonating with people? Like, you know, other than this press release, I haven't, and me squawking about it, I haven't really seen or heard a heck of a lot about it. Well, you know, unfortunately, I haven't seen it uh, getting the coverage that it probably deserves uh, in the mainstream media. Perhaps that will change. Uh, but they always get, uh, as a counter, uh, a ridiculous spin on the part of the, the Ministry of Energy, and the new Minister of Energy is, uh, has proven to be an adept uh, spinner as well. They continuously talk about how you know, the government has done things to mitigate the, the effects on people's bills, but none of it works. And secondly, whenever you remove part of a bill one place, you end, end up adding more to the bill everywhere else. I mean, it's not a, a, a situation where you can just make something disappear. All it does is it's like shifting the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know? Uh, the government says, as you alluded to, that it's taking care of those in lower incomes that are in need. Uh, do you feel that is the case? Well, that's not the case. Uh, they spin it. They try to spin it that way, Scott. But, I mean, I'm a, a local MPP as well, and I know it comes through my door uh, in the constituency office, and all of my colleagues uh, sense the same thing. And so do the liberal members, who, has, who particularly those who represent a constituency that has a rural component or is primarily rural. They know it as well. They're just uh, not allowed to speak out about it because they're all, you know, pretty much told to, you told this line uh, and, and, and don't step outside of it. But, I mean, we've had more people cut off, uh, more, more people were cut off in hydro in the last year than, than, than any other year before. And it's, 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 it's a sad commentary. Uh, 60,000 uh, households in Ontario uh, were cut off of electricity last year in the province of Ontario. And that's, that's not because they're bad people. It's because they've been faced with some unbelievably difficult choices, uh, and uh, and are, are forced to make the to make the choice between eating and heating, uh, heating and eating, and 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 that's that is all, you know you can look at it any way you want. I mean, everybody has challenges managing their finances, but when you have a an energy system that has gone from four point three cents a kilowatt hour when this government took power to over eighteen cents a kilowatt hour at peak today. You can, it's easy to see the kind of effect that that has had on people. And uh, even you know, the, when you've got people like uh, you know, Doug Porter, the chief economist for BMO, saying you know, the cost of electricity is a real threat uh, to, this, uh, to Ontario's economy. When, when, they, when, they, when, when they start talking like that at, the, at those high levels, it has resonated with them. They realize that you can't have these continuously rising electricity rates and not have a serious uh, dampening effect on Ontario's economy because people are going to make choices. Do I establish a plant in Ontario 
or do I do it somewhere else? Do I keep my plants in Ontario or do I move it somewhere else? All of those things are going through the minds of businesses across this province. Again, John, I keep going back to the first line of this press release that, that, that we received yesterday that say we, we pay the highest residential electricity rates in North America, surpassing Hawaii. Again, I, I have a hard time understanding why this is not resonating with Ontarians other than they're buying in and they're saying, well, you know, the coal-fired power plants are down, the air is cleaner, there's less smog days. Do you get the feeling that Ontarians are behind wind on all this? Well, they, they, they haven't really, uh, really got the, the true message about what this is meaning to them. And for people that uh, are, I know are in good economic shape, uh, perhaps a hydro bill isn't as, uh, a high hydro bill isn't as catastrophic. But I know it's the number one issue that comes through uh, through my office uh, here in Renfrew, Nipissing, Pembroke. But the reality is, too, that they, they've spun a huge tail. Yes, I mean, the, the, we were going, we, everybody was going to, you know, get out of coal. But it could have been done at a far lower cost than what these people chose. When they instituted the Green Energy Act, Scott, they guaranteed that our rates would end up being the highest in North America because they signed so many bad contracts. You know who's getting rich? It's people who build wind farms. Yeah. It's people who lobby for wind farm uh, developers. They're making scads and scads of money, so much that they're going around bribing municipalities to declare themselves wind-friendly, like offering what amounts to millions of dollars to municipalities to pass a resolution declaring themselves open to a wind farm development. How do you sell this message, and how do you sell this message, John, and, and not sound like you're anti-environment? Because, you know, again, for, for, for every comment I hear exactly from what you're saying, there's, you know, somebody on the other side who's taking it, you know, to a far green extreme. And, and you know, there seems to be no happy medium. There seems to be no middle ground here, which is, I think, what Ontarians are looking for. I, I recognize what you're saying, and I think we have actually, uh, we've actually hit that middle ground. We believe we could have made all of the advancements in renewable power without... There were these rates that, we've, that, that this government offered. Right. We believe we could have brought in enough renewable power to meet all of our um, climate change goals without overpaying for it. Hmm. Why, why would you have to pay more than what the, the going rate is than what's being paid in other jurisdictions? There was no reason for that. This government just decided that they were going to make... And it's not, it's not a uh, coincidence, uh, Scott, that some of the biggest donators to the Liberal Party also turned out to be the same people who are building large-scale wind developments. Uh, there's also news uh, recently uh, Ontario's electric car goal could lead to higher rates. Uh, this is something that we've talked about before. Uh, the government, of course, encouraging people through incentives to, to buy electric vehicles, increasing the amount of charging stations that are uh, between major cities in order people don't feel anxiety about losing a charge. Uh, but if everybody starts moving in this direction, what does that do? They say that there is enough power in the grid to, to handle all this, but what will this mean for pricing? Well, there's no question if you make infrastructure changes, which will be completely necessary to do, and uh, there, there will have to be price increases. And, and I, I was listening to the story on the news last night as well, and you know, one person mused about, well, if people are charging their cars at night, it's not going to have that big of an impact. People don't travel at night like they do in the daytime. If you really are going to you know, meet the kind of goals that they're talking about electric vehicles, 
they're going to be on the road during the daytime, and they're going to be need to be charged during the daytime because the ranges are such that they're going to be require that for anybody that's driving significant distances. I mean, that's why they have gas stations all over the country. You've got to fill up your tank, right? Uh, so, 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 yes, it's going to have a huge impact uh, on, the, on the ability to meet those demands uh, during peak times. If you get a day like today where it's, you know, 35 degrees and a humid X of well over 40, uh, and, and you also have all of those other uh, demands on the system, of course it's going to make a difference. How does your party convince voters that your party can be green and still be cost-effective, do their due diligence, and, and not take us down this road? Well, we're continuously uh, trying to deliver that message, and I, we believe that when we uh, you know, produce our, our final electricity uh, platform for the next election, we're right in the midst of our, our policy development process right now and engaging all members of the party, and include and, and abs, abs, actually including non-members of the party as well, all across Ontario, in a, in a uh, large consultative process uh, that we, uh, we began after the convention in the, uh, in the spring, uh, which will lead to our policy development. We believe that we will uh, be able to meet all of the green climate change goals without inflicting serious um, critical damage to our economy, which is what this government is doing right now, inflicting that kind of damage. Is the PC, is the Ontario PCs becoming more green as we approach this next election? I think we're all becoming uh, more, uh, we're all cognizant of the fact that, you know, climate change is real and we're all going to have to address it. I mean, every government across this country today has a has a plan for, for dealing with uh, climate change or in the process of developing one. It's not something that that is, uh, you know, new out there. We're all going to have to have one, but we believe that our climate change plan and our carbon plan will be one that protects our environment, but also shields our economy from catastrophic damage, which is what is going to be inflicted on it by this government. If you were to take power tomorrow, um, what can you do with what has already been put in place? I mean, can you put the genie back in the bottle? Is that what you want to do? Uh, you know, we're going to look at every uh, possible scenario that will be uh, doable uh, under the laws of Ontario. Uh, we believe there's all kinds of these contracts that can be uh, renegotiated. Uh, we're going to look at every one of them. Uh, we also know that every one of these people that is on the receiving end of these contracts know that they've become uh, very, very rich on these excessively uh, generous contracts that were signed by the Liberal government and them. Uh, you know, we're going, to, we're going to use the power of persuasion as well uh, to try to make sure that the electricity that the people of Ontario are buying is at a competitive rate with other jurisdictions and actually reflects the cost of producing that power, not the cost of making the, uh, the um, signers of the contracts filthy rich at the expense of Ontario ratepayers. How big of an issue is this going to be in the next election, do you think? I believe it'll be a significant issue in the next uh, provincial election. Uh, we really believe that it's, uh, there's nothing, I don't believe there's anything that this government's going to do over the next, next uh, 18 to, or 20, 24 months or so uh, to change their direction. They're going to have a lot of spin about what they're doing, but they're locked in on, on so many of their, their policies uh, that I believe that uh, in the next two years the situation will, will likely even be uh, more stark uh, for the people of Ontario that they'll be able to. They'll be able. They'll have a clear choice uh, as to who they want 
uh, running this province and particularly its electricity system. What can Ontarians do now? I mean, uh, you know, we're hearing stories uh, just like you alluded to in your press release of we had a local Hamilton uh, a business that was in the news uh, just this week talking about this very issue that, uh, that. that uh, you know, it, despite retrofitting his place, he's still paying unbelievable bills and had to lay people off. What do you say to those people between now and the next election? Well, what I'd like to say is, is hang in there. Help is on the way. Uh, we're going to look at these things. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to make any kind of a, uh, rash promises uh, mm-hmm. on, the, on the radio, as you, as you know you, you wouldn't either, uh, but because we've got to look at the system and, 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 and understand all of the facts. But those kinds of things wouldn't be happening to that uh, Hamilton business if this government didn't make the choices it made, particularly back in 2009 when they instituted the Green Energy Act. And then it shouldn't have been called green because it was environmentally friendly. It should have been called green because it made an awful lot of developers and lobbyists filthy rich on the backs of the ratepayers. And ratepayers like that businessman in Hamilton that is, you know, cutting uh, his, uh, his usage and trying to be as efficient as possible, but still, still sees his bills climb, climb, and climb ever again. John Yakabuski has been with us, PC Energy Critic in Ontario. PCs uh, have, uh, are talking and, of course, have a press release re- uh, re- uh, out, which uh, they hoping are hoping it resonates with Ontarians. Uh, Ontario Hydro One customers officially pay the highest residential electricity rates in North America, uh, surpassing Hawaii's. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.